So we are continuing our series uh, through Ephesians then, and I, I want us to set our focus on what is uh, the end of this passage that we're studying in this season. Uh, we are in Ephesians chapter 4, specifically you'll remember a couple of weeks ago I had mentioned to you, uh, Marcus Barth, for example, he refers to Ephesians 4, 1 through 16, which is our focus right now, as the constitutional statement for the church. And so we are studying this foundational text for the New Testament church. This is as you read this passage, you begin to understand what it is that we're supposed to look like. So since we're finishing up this section of Scripture today, let me read to you from verse 1 all the way to verse 16, and then we're going to put our focus on verses 14, 15, and 16 uh, today. So Paul has said a ton already in the first three, uh, what we know is the first three chapters of Ephesians, and then starting in verse 1 of chapter 4, he says, therefore, having, basically having said everything that I've said so far, he's saying, I, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to live worthy of the calling you have received with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. Now, grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift, for it says when he ascended on high, he took captives he took the captives captive and gave gifts to people. But when he, when but what does he ascended mean? Except that he also descended to the lower parts of the earth. The one who descended is the one who ascended far above all the heavens to fill all things. And he himself gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry to build up the body of Christ until we all reach the unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son growing into maturity with the stature measured by Christ's fullness. Just period there for a second so you can breathe. Paul, the king of run-on sentences and thoughts. Uh, now that catches us up to what we're going to study today uh, in the time that we have left. He says, then. In other words, when all of us being uh, exercising our gifts and working for the unity of the bond of peace and the spirit and understanding that we, there is one God, one baptism, one father of all, once we live in that way, as we continue to grow up like that, it says, then we will no longer be like little children, tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning, with cleverness and the techniques of deceit. But speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. From him, the whole body, fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for building up itself in love by the proper working for each individual part. God, as we wrap up this uh, portion of our journey through the book of Ephesians today, uh, help me to speak clearly what you would say by your Holy Spirit to this church and help us to receive, uh, to do what Jason encouraged us to do, to say yes to you, to understand that you have crafted us for something good and, uh, and pleasing to you and partnering with you to grow your kingdom. Help us in that, in Jesus' name, amen. Just by way of reminder, Paul has written this letter to the Christians in the city of Ephesus. That's why the letter or the book is called Ephesians. It's written to the Ephesian Christians. He was actually writing it in about 62 AD while he was sitting in a Roman prison. So you think a few decades have gone on since the death and resurrection of Jesus. The church has begun to rapidly increase around uh, the region and into different regions. Uh, and people are being sent out to spread the gospel. And the church is beginning to take on some kind of form and function. But what we see is that the church back then, I know it's way different now, is built up of broken people who have issues. I know it's way different now. It's not at all like that anymore. And so Paul needed to write a letter to these people to show them what, did it, what would it look like for you if you actually lived in the context of community as if Jesus has changed something about who you are. And so he wants you to understand who you are and how you should live because of who you are. 
So Paul writes this from prison, which, by the way, I love that in uh, verse 1, what we refer to as verse 1 of chapter 4, he says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling to which you were called. He says, I am a prisoner, but not to Rome. I am a prisoner to God. And being a prisoner to God actually produces spiritual freedom regardless of whatever happens with my physical body. And so in that, in that framework, from that context, writing from a Roman prison cell to the Christians in Ephesus, Paul offers a vision for the future of the church. And it's, it's, a, it's a challenge. It's, there's work that we need to do if we want to live into this vision. And so far, he's told us to work, walk worthy of the calling, be humble, work to build and maintain unity among fellow Christians, discover the gifts that you are meant to be to the church, and then live into your gifting in ways that unify the church and equip other people to do ministry. All while remembering that Jesus is the lead pastor of the church pretty good. So then he says, if you're going to be mature and unified, then I I want you to do some things, and I I want you to live in some ways. And the first thing that he tells us, the first uh, lesson from this final portion of his, uh, what we would call this constitutional declaration for the church, is he says, I want you to stand rooted. Stand rooted. Listen again to what he says in in verse 14. He says, Then we will no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning and with cleverness and the techniques of deceit. Paul's desire throughout all of the letters that he writes to all of the Christians around different cities is he wants people who follow the way of Jesus to be able to live in the world without being moved by the world. This is really, really important to Paul. You can live in the world, but don't be marked by the world. You mark the world. So it should be the other way around than how it normally is, right? But notice here that Paul is not actually talking about the lies of the world. He's talking about the lies that find their way into the church. He's talking about people who come in and call themselves teachers and teach something to the church that actually is inspired by the world. So he's saying, don't worry about the lies out there. He's saying, worry about when the lies get in here. That's a problem, right? And and he's talking about how he's warning us there will be people who are gifted in convincing people that what they're saying is true, but what they're saying is not true. Paul's warning is, watch out for false teaching or bad doctrine or bad theology. People will be clever. They will, they will sound convincing, but they, they are not good teachers, even if they're good liars or good talkers. I was listening to a sermon by a guy named Chuck Smith. If you've, if you've seen the movie that came out recently, The Jesus Revolution, Chuck Smith is the older pastor in the, in the movie. Uh, he, was, he was a real guy. Uh, he pastored a church, and this incredible revival happened. And, and uh, just, just by way of bragging rights, he was a graduate of our Foursquare College. Uh, so he's, he's one of us. We love to claim some Chuck Smith. Uh, and anyway, I was listening to a Chuck Smith sermon. As he, was, he was actually preaching through this passage that we're studying right now. And in there, he told this story. Uh, about this guy that came over from England and he began to preach in America. And, and w- what he was preaching was he, he began to teach that, that, that Christians could be possessed by demons and that through prayer, uh, if, if he laid hands on the, the Christian who was possessed by a demon, that uh, they, could, they would vomit up the demon. And that's how he knew that they were delivered. Well, this went on and drew a crowd, and, uh, and people began to come, so many people, in fact, that they would hand you a napkin at the door and say, just get ready, because at some point the pastor will pray, and you'll vomit up your little demon. It'll be like this little green thing in the napkin. You just th- don't look at it. Just throw it away. Well, uh, upon further inspection, uh, Pastor Chuck Smith actually tells a story that he was kind of involved in some investigating about this to see if this was something that God was really doing. And it turns out that, you know, when they, you would, if you would open up the napkin, there would be nothing there. Um, and so they asked the guy, the, the preacher, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? This is just, this is a distraction. This isn't helpful. It's not even true. It's not real. Um, and he said, you know, People need a gimmick if you want to get them in to hear the gospel. 
I mean, that's a pretty, like, that's on the nose, right? People need a gimmick. So here's a guy who flew all the way from England to America and was so unconvinced of the power of the Bible that he needed to come up with something to trick you into coming to church so that maybe then I could tell you something true. Th- think about that. That's, that's wild. The, the, the sad part about that is that that's not a unique story. I mean, we have all kinds of gimmicks that, that people use uh, to, to prop up all kinds of ideas and doctrines. This is what Paul's talking about. Be careful of the, the new doctrines, the winds of doctrine. Like, there, there's so many of them, and they come so quickly that it just feels like the wind blowing. You live in the Yellow Valley, you know about the wind blowing. It's like it never stops. There's like constantly another breeze just coming through, blowing some tumbleweeds in your back. Sorry, I'm just venting for a second, but... Uh, but, but Paul is saying, watch out for this. It's going to happen, and it's going to happen a lot, and it's just going to blow right into the church if you're not careful. So you need to stand rooted. But this happens all the time. In fact, uh, I remember having a conversation with somebody once. They were saying, you know, what we really need to do is uh, we, we need to do something called a fire tunnel. And this is how you really can have people get prayed for, like in powerful ways. And, and I said, what's a fire tunnel? And they said, well, we have all the people who are filled with the Holy Spirit line up in the front of the church. And then people like go through the fire tunnel. And then by the end of it, they're fired up by God. And I said, so you just mean like a prayer line? And they're like, no, it's a fire tunnel. I said, it's a prayer line. No, it's a fire tunnel. And we got in this debate about what do you call a thing. And at the end of the day, I said, you know, you're making uh, prayer sound magical. And that becomes a problem. So instead, we had a prayer line. I mean, it's happened. We, we have to watch out. It's tried to come into our church. You've probably been in other churches where it's tried to come in. I remember talking to a guy one time this dude loved the Lord, filled with the Holy Spirit, super evangelistic guy, had a call in his life for evangelism. It came out of some really dark stuff, and God had redeemed, set him free, radical conversion, right? So I'm not saying he wasn't a Christian. He just was a little interesting. I remember talking with him one time. He was praying for somebody, and as he was praying, he started yelling at the person he was praying for and shaking. His hands were shaking while he was praying for the person. And I'm not saying this to make fun of the person. I'm just saying, I, I want you to know, this is what it was like. It was shaking. So intense. And so he said, hey, I let him finish his prayer. And he said, amen. And I said, hey, thanks for praying. That was a blessing. He was praying for somebody to get healed. And, um, and, and so I, I said, take a walk with me. Let's talk. And I said, thank you so much for your heart for prayer. I believe with you that God still heals. That's awesome. I love that. Don't stop praying for people to get healed. Talk to me about the shaking, though. And he said, oh, when I pray for people, the Holy Spirit takes over my body and begins to shake my body. And I said, no, he doesn't. And he said, yes, he does. And I said, no, I'll prove it to you in Scripture. You see, the Word of God says that even the prophets, that, they're, that, that everything is subject to the prophet. The prophecy is subject to the prophet. In other words, when God comes to give a word to somebody... The prophet doesn't lose control of their ability and the Holy Spirit then like takes possession of your body and you just become a vessel that God uses to speak through you without your will engaged. And so we talked about how you never give up your free will in the kingdom of God. You came into the kingdom because of your free will. By the way, you could leave the kingdom because of your free will too. That's your choice. And in the middle of being in the kingdom... You don't have the Holy Spirit take over your body and do things that you don't have the choice to say, no, body, stop that. That's unhelpful right now and distracting. We're praying in the name of Jesus, not in the power of my shaking. And I watched the light bulb go on for him. And you know what? The next time I asked him to pray for somebody, he stood still like a rock. He still yelled because he's a passionate dude. See, just... Strange stuff can come into the church if we're not careful. And we begin to act like that is doctrine, like it has to be that way if we're not careful. And, and some of those things, the examples that I've given you so far are just sort of, you know, like just kind of minor examples. But there can be some pernicious and dangerous examples of this sort of thing as well. I, I was in a uh, meeting with a group of college students recently, and we were talking about actually deliverance and how do you actually have uh, deliverance from, way, from the ways that the devil does come and attack and demons do come and attack even Christian people. 
And this young person piped up from the background, and he says, oh, yeah, uh, one of the things that we need to get deliverance from is demonic rest. And everyone in the room was like, what's demonic rest? I've never heard of demonic rest before. Um, it's a new one. It was a new one to me. I'd never heard of demonic rest. Um, and, and so we asked the young person what he meant by that, and he said, this is how he described demonic rest. He said, demonic rest is when you're so tired in your faith that you return to old sinful habits. Now, here's what happened. This young man really wanted to sound super spiritual. And so he made up a term for returning to old sinful habits. He could have just said returning for old, to old sinful habits, right? But I want to go further than that. What he actually didn't realize that he was doing was he was equating returning to old sinful habits as being demonized. Now, do you see how easy it was for him to remove all of his personal responsibility. Now all of a sudden when this young man returns to old sinful habits, he blames it on a demon instead of the fact that he's just lazy and immature. Do you see how simple it is? Why is that dangerous? Because if we don't catch that now for this young man, he's going to blame the devil for himself being lazy and immature for the rest of his life. And he's going to teach people, oh, you don't have to take personal accountability for the fact that you don't do the right thing and repent for your sin and grow up in your faith. You just have to cast the demon out. Friends, there is not a devil in all of your bad habits. Most of that is just you. Okay, I love you. I love you, but I love you. But <laughs> you're okay. But like, grow up. This is what Paul is saying to us, right? And we have to be careful because the devil wants us to believe things that sound true, but are just off truth. Why is it dangerous to talk about demonic rest when we just talk about, when we should just talk about grow up and get your habits right and stop falling back into your old sin? Because it doesn't allow room for Jesus to actually change your life. Now all of a sudden, the actual strongest power in the room is a demon and not the name of Jesus. And the demon actually becomes stronger than your own will. Well, I couldn't help doing the bad habit because the demon... No. Exercise your free will. Get some accountability. And as Hebrews 12 says, cast off every weight that easily ensnares us in running our race. Uh, this young man, uh, God bless his heart, I think he's potentially got a great, wonderful, bright future ahead of him in the kingdom. But at this moment, he's, he's what I would call a fire chaser. There are people in the church who are so immature in their faith that all they want is the next radical moment. All they want is to chase the fire of the Holy Spirit. And if you are just a fire chaser, you will find fire. And some of it will be hellfire that will masquerade itself as a move of God when it's really just a move of the flesh. And you will begin to praise something that doesn't actually represent God. This, my friends, is actually dangerous. We begin to, and, and, and I would just say this as we are a Pentecostal church, this is the sort of thing that gets into Pentecostal churches and lies to us. Just because we believe in the present active power, miracle-working power of the Holy Spirit in 2023 does not mean that we have to shake uncontrollably or that we fall into demonic rest when we are lazy and go back to bad habits. We believe in the power of God to deliver. But we have to know that we're actually dealing with a, a demon before you can get delivered from one. So it's important that we teach clearly. Yes, so, Paul is warning us about when our fire chasers grow up to become teachers in the church. That's dangerous. And by the way, if you're wondering, what do I do if I encounter someone like that, just do what I do. Here's the test. You give these people the test every single time. It's, the, it's a one-question test. Show me where you find that in the Bible. By the way, I teach at our Foursquare Bible College, and that's the question I ask more than any other question as a teacher. In fact, I think I sometimes have had class sessions where I ask that question more than I even lectured. 
Show me where you found that in the Bible. And by the way, we can't be mad at them. They came to Bible college to learn, so let's help them learn, right? Praise God. But we got to ask this question so that when they go out to teach, that they've learned. Show me where you find that in the Bible, right? My shaking friend, show me where you find that in the Bible. Well, he couldn't, so I showed him where I found that you don't do that in the Bible. So here's the point. How do you stand rooted? How do you stand firm? You have to know what you're standing rooted in and what are you standing firm on. I only stand rooted in the Word of God. I only stand, stand rooted in Scripture, right? So we protect ourselves from false teachers when we know the real thing. Uh, also, in the book of Hebrews, I referenced Hebrews 12 earlier, and in Hebrews chapter 13, the author of Hebrews writes, remember your leaders who have spoken God's word to you, not their opinion, not their political ideals, not their passions, but God's word. As you carefully observe the outcome of their lives, imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. By the way, this is why we have that on the doors as you walk out of this room, because we want you to know we're not making up new theology here at Life Church. We are talking about the Jesus who has been the same yesterday, he's the same today, and he'll be the same forever. And if you ever hear us say something that doesn't agree with Scripture from this stage or representing this church, call us on it. May we be humble and mature enough to repent. So far, so good, I think. In verse 9, he goes on to say, don't be led astray by various kinds of strange teachings. And then he gives an example. He says, for it's good for the heart to be established by grace and not by food regulations, since those who observe them have not benefited. So he's actually talking about how there are these religious people, legalistic people who come in and say, see, this is what you can eat and not eat if you're going to be a Christian. And the author of Hebrews says, don't worry about people's food regulations that they want to put on you. Receive the grace of God. Live in the grace of God. And by the way, like, just as an, as, a, as an aside, if the Holy Spirit tells you to eat and not eat something, then you obey the Holy Spirit. But don't tell me that I'm not a Christian if I don't have the same diet as you. That's what he's saying here, right? So instead, let your heart be established by grace in the context of remembering your leaders who have spoken God's word to you. So we also protect ourselves from false teachers, not just by knowing the word, remembering what we've been taught, but by actually growing up over time. Earlier in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 5, the author writes, we have a great deal to say to you about this. He was writing about a kind of a challenging subject to understand. He says, we want to say more to you about this. It's difficult to explain, but since you've become too lazy to understand it, it's like, I can't, I can't, can't go on. It's, it's difficult for you to understand. You haven't grown up. You're lazy. Although by this time, you ought to be teachers. Burn. You need someone to teach you the basic principles of God's revelation again. You need milk, not solid food. Now, everyone who lives on milk is inexperienced with the message about righteousness because he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, for those whose senses have been trained to distinguish between good and evil. Like the solid food, the deep things of the kingdom of God, understanding what is like what like all of the stuff written to us in Scripture about the way we should live as members of the body of Christ, that is actually reserved for people who will do the work to grow up. Now, I just want to remind you, I love you. But but I think that God does say to the church, grow up. I love that I go to a church where there are lots of people growing up. And, and we just heard a testimony about a guy who came in with very little faith and was the next thing closest to an atheist and was like, I'm just going to try this. I'm not sure. I don't know. And then over time, Jason grew up. He grew up. He grew up so much that he could understand deep things about God. I've learned from this man because he's grown up. So we're supposed to grow, we're supposed to protect each other from false teachings. Mike, come here for a second. Let's, let's show the people what this will look like. Get up here, Mike. I'm just making people do things I didn't ask them permission to do today. Just stand right there. 
Hey, so stand there like you're a Christian. Oh, good job. Okay. All right. Let's say, face the people, Mike. Okay. Let's say, let's, let's say that, that, that you have an idea about, about God. Okay. You do? I do. Good. Okay. This illustration's going great so far. Now, here's, here's, what it would, here's what it would actually look like for, uh, for, for most Christians to not stand firm in the context of community, right? Mike has an idea about purity, let's say. His, his parents raised him right, and they told him uh, no sex outside of the context of marriage, right? He's nodding his head. It's good. It's going great. Well, the world will come around. False teachers will come around. And by the way, I've actually heard this from people who call themselves Christians who've actually said, do you know that God wants your marriage to be so successful that he'd actually be okay if you had sex with the person who you're thinking about getting married to so that you would know if you're sexually compatible with them? False. False. Yeah. Good. But could you imagine if, if Mike was not rooted in Scripture what would he do? Oh, just let me just go run over here then and just go have sex with this girl that I'm thinking about. Maybe I'm marrying. We'll find out if we're compatible. Right? This is a, by the way, this is a really safe illustration here too because he's married to this wonderful person and, uh, and, and they figured this out. There's a baby on the way. We won't talk about how that happened, but... Um, where are you going? I just make you this. I'm enjoying how awkward this is. So yeah, I know, I know. That's why this is safe. Yeah. See, the other thing that happens is that Paul goes on um, here, and he says, he says in in verse 14, right? You'll no longer be children, tossed by waves, blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning. But then he says this: Speak the truth in love, and let us grow in every way into Him who's the head, Christ. Right. So, so here's where this becomes more than just Mike has to, everything's on his shoulders, and if he gets it wrong, he's in big, big trouble, right? Because this doesn't just happen in the context of Mike reads his Bible or listens to his mom and remembers what she told him when he was a little kid. Um, this happens in the context of community. Let's just say, for example, that Mike begins to walk in the wrong direction. Now, here's where the church comes in and says, hold on, buddy. That's not good for you. And I love you enough to tell you that you're not supposed to walk in that way. Let's walk towards purity together. Right? Okay, now, I want to be really, really clear for you. This takes all of us. Right? And if it, you, don't even, you don't even want this to not take all of us. Because if this doesn't take all of us, it would mean it would be my job to do two things. My job would be write really good sermons for Sunday and be really nosy about your life every single day of the week, right? We would have to have a much smaller church because ain't nobody got time for that. <laughs> but also gross. Ugh. This would turn into a dictatorship really, really quickly. And the temptation for me would be you have to measure up to my standard. But the beautiful thing about this taking all of us is that I'm not the only person standing next to Mike in this church, right? There's all of you, too. There's all of you. There's all of you. There's all of you. Now, we have to be really careful. We talked a little bit about, like, you know, intimacy and relationships and stuff. Let's, let's keep that, like, appropriate and friendly in the way that we have those conversations. Because doesn't Paul tell us to speak the truth in love, love right? In love. So it wouldn't be loving for all of the fellas in the church to go around policing the sexual lives of the women in the church as if just because you were made a man, you have the authority to tell women what to do. Right? And ladies, that would go the other way around for you as well. This happens in the context of community. Speak the truth in love. To each other, you probably just Thanks. go sit next to your wife for a second. <laughs> that was more fun than I expected it was going to be. 
Okay, so he says, speak the truth in love. And remember here, the audience that Paul is referring to is Christians speaking the truth to other Christians. If, if Mike isn't inside the context of the church, then I'm not as concerned about whether or not he's living up to the standards of the biblical uh, model of righteousness. And it's wild to me how much energy we expend telling the world to live like Christians when they're not Christians. And how little we seem to be comfortable telling Christians to live like Christians. I mean, it's, it's wild to me. Like, we'll rally entire congregations to go and picket against people who don't agree with us about the one thing that matters above everything else, what you say about Jesus. And, and frankly, I'm not concerned what people are doing on a Tuesday who don't go to church, who aren't a part of the kingdom. But I'm deeply concerned what you are doing on a Tuesday because you're a part of the kingdom. You're a part of my church community. I'm not just deeply concerned because I'm your pastor and I would fail if you ever sin. I mean, I'd have to resign immediately. There's something about when Paul says, speak the truth in love. You can look at that from two different perspectives. First of all, speak the truth in love. Like if you see a brother or a sister in Christ, someone in your church community falling into sin, then you have a responsibility to love them by telling them the truth. Right? simultaneously speak the truth. We cannot be silent about sin in the church. We cannot be silent when bad doctrine comes into the church. And in order for you to spot it, you have to be in relationship and you have to really know the word. Be in relationship and you have to really know the word. And if we can get that right, if we can do that right, then we can come to verse 16 and we go, oh, that's easy. In verse 16, Paul ends this, what we call the constitutional statement of the church. He ends this statement about the desire for unity for all of us using our gifts. And he says, from him the whole body fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament promotes the growth of the body for the building itself up in love by the, power, by the proper working of each individual part. I would just propose to you that this is the natural result of the other 15 verses that came before it. The design of the church is for each person to be who they are designed to be by God, under the headship of Christ, standing firm on the truth, serving, supporting, and helping each other grow in maturity and unity. Now think again about Paul's language. He says, from him, everything comes from Jesus. He is the head of the church. We are to follow leaders who follow Christ. And this is really important because one day the leaders we follow will be gone. Will we know how to follow Christ? And hopefully we will have followed long enough to ourselves become leaders who follow Christ. I was talking to somebody recently about how it seems like all of the, like a generation of heroes in our Foursquare family in our denomination are dying. I don't know if you are familiar with the name Jack Hayford, but he recently passed away. He was at one point the president of Life Bible College. He was the president of the Foursquare denomination for a season. He was the pastor of a church called Church on the Way, very well known uh, church. He wrote many books and worship songs and was known around the world uh, for his impact and ministry. And we, as a movement, followed Pastor Jack. Well, he's gone. Have we grown up enough that we can still follow Jesus, even if our leaders are gone? We have to remember what all of this, uh, where all of this started. It started in Christ. But then Paul goes on. He says, for the whole body fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament. Here's, here's, the, here's the key. I want you to put some flesh on this. Paul is not inviting you to tolerate one another. He's inviting you to be formed 
into one another, so that you fit with one another. My wife and I, on November 1st of this year, will we'll celebrate 20 years of marriage. I was, we haven't gotten there yet, don't clap. Um, we'll get there. But, uh, but here, here's the interesting thing. We started dating, I was 15 years old when we started dating. Do you think I was like a person yet? Thanks, babe. <laughs> we have shaped one another. Sharon and I fit together. Our lives are knitted together so much. Not because she's the one for me and she always perfectly fit. It was just great. No, I made it real hard for some time. And we had, to, we had to mold each other. We had to, we had to, our, our issues rubbed up against each other enough that we became unified in some areas where we weren't unified when we first got married. That took time. But the idea of what Paul is saying here is consider yourselves fitted and knit together. That takes time, but it also takes commitment. If you've ever met anybody who's uh, an Ignatian monk, they will take something called a vow of stability. I've mentioned it here at the church before, but a vow of stability is where you, you actually make a, a vow, a verbal commitment to lifelong commitment to a, to a place and a group of people in that place. And I actually heard a story about two Ignatian monks living today in modern era, uh, living in this, uh, in this whatever they call it, monastery. Um, sorry, that was disrespectful. They were living in a monastery. And, uh, they, and they, don't, they hate each other. They cannot stand each other. Their personalities just grit and grate and argh, can't. Every time they have to, like, they get assigned to work together on projects and they just, they can't, they just hate each other. But they love each other. It's really weird. So they have, like, regular meetings with, the, with their leader and they sit down and they, like, forgive and repent. <laughs> They can't stand each other, but they're committed to one another. And everyone in the, in the order knows they're not friends, but they're like family. And their vow, they didn't take a vow so that I could suffer for the rest of my life. They took a vow because they want something of their life to be a public uh, declaration that Jesus is committed to me even when I make it hard for him to. And, and friends, in our modern loosey-goosey membership kind of model of church, we say it is so easy for you to come in and out of a church and like you could just kind of like come in late, sneak out early, never make a friend, and then wonder why you don't grow. And the only place that you can want, that you, you have to end up putting a blame on somebody, so you blame, like, well, the preachers just didn't feed me there. And I'm aware that if you've come to this church, there's probably been some Sundays where, like, the preaching just didn't do enough for you. Because we're humans, and, like, we have weeks and lives, and maybe we're still learning and are growing our, in our understanding of Scripture. And, like, the preaching isn't always going to be perfect, so there's got to be something more to the kingdom and to your growth, and to your understanding of church, and just did you come to church and like the sermon? So I wonder what it would be like for you to take a vow of stability. Now, I'm not saying that membership at Life Church requires a vow of stability. I'm, I'm not proposing that. But I am inviting you to think about a vow of stability with friends. I was thinking about the group of people that surround my life. There's, there's Sharon and I. We have our daughters. I've got a vow of stability to those three humans, right? And then I've got uh, Danny, who's my brother-in-law. Cheryl, who's my sister-in-law. You saw them on stage leading us in worship today. They're out leading our youth right now. I've got Mark and Deb, Espy, Don and Chelsea Marshall. Now, I could list more names. I'm upset that a couple of them are leaving town, but thank God for Zoom. Here, here's what I'm saying. I could go on, but I, I, I'm not giving you my list so that you can know, did I make the list? I'm giving you the list of the people that are that close to my life 
so that you can be jealous for it for your own life. It's like, did he just use the word jealousy in a positive context in the church? Is that allowed? Are we allowed to say jealousy in a positive context? In the... Yes, friends, be jealous for that. I propose to you that one of the greatest works of the devil against the church is loneliness and isolation. And the solution has always been written into Scripture. It's called the church. And in 2023, we call those friends. Make some. I loved the other, the other week we, we broke up into little groups of people, pray for each other, and I, and I, and I saw the, the Kellys and the Coddingtons right over here, and, and they, were, they were just talking and praying with each other, and they've got lunch plans later, and I'm, I'm hungry, and I want to invite myself, but I've got lunch plans later too, so I can't go, and that's all right. Do you have lunch plans? This is how I'm ending my sermon, by the way. Do you have lunch plans? Do you have friends? I have a friend named Justice. He pastors down in L.A., and he says, you know, the, the single saddest thing that I ever hear from people who go to my church is that they don't have a friend. Do you have a friend? And I'm just going to say to you, I understand that sometimes making friends in the context of a local church can be challenging. And here's why. Because we stink. Like, we suck. We are broken. We will hurt you. The sermons won't always be great. This one's ending in a kind of a weird way. Sometimes the song will be off key. Sometimes somebody will say something offensive to you, and you have to make a decision about whether or not you ever want to go to church with that person again. In a, in a few months from now, the election cycle will kick up, and you're going to decide whether or not you want to kill the person that attends church next to you based on their politics. Someone's going to ask you a question, and you're going to go, I don't want you to ask me that question. That's too personal. Don't ask me that question. And you're going to have to decide whether or not you run away or whether or not you lean into community. And I cannot make that decision for you. Jesus himself cannot make that decision for you, but you cannot stand firm and speak the truth in love and become everything that God has called you to do if you try to do it alone. So do you have lunch plans? For the next minute, I'm going to invite you to do something. It's going to require you to write something down. And I know that for some of us, writing something down requires thumbs. So get your phone out, or if you're taking notes, get your paper out. And I just want to ask you some questions. And as I'm asking you these questions, I just want to invite you to write down the names of people that come to mind as the answer to the question that I'm asking you. All right? And if you have a hard time writing names down, I'm going to say to you, that's all right today then you'll know the work that you have to do, is find ways to put names as the answer to these questions. Does this make sense? Okay. So, question number one. Who is in my circle of friends at my church? Who at my church is in my circle of friends? You heard me name a few names of people. All the people I named are at my church. I could have named others of you in this room things that we've done together, things I want to do again, ice cream, Jeep run with the Hansons, watch more Chosen with the Esmerleys, Laker games with John, park trips with Bryce and Erica. Like, who's, who's on your list, guys? Okay, let's go deeper. Who helps me stand firm? Can you put a name there? Who helps me stand firm? And let's, let's make that real practical. Who, when you say something that's bad theology, is like, Nyeh. do you have a name of a person that helps you stand firm? Here's another question. Who, to whom can I speak the truth in love? Is there a name of a person that if, if they're going sideways, I can look at them and go, I don't know about that, and they won't slap me or abandon me? 
I mean, I hope you don't know anybody who would slap you if you said something, but you know. Who has the ability to correct me if I'm wrong? I remember I said something from the pulpit one time. It was not too long ago, actually. I said something from the pulpit. It wasn't like bad theology. It just wasn't clear and helpful. And Bryce called me. We had a meeting about it. I was so, oh, so thankful for that. The next week, I was able to stand up and just bring some clarity to what I said because my friend corrected me. So good. Bryce, thank you. Who can do that for you? Whose distinct gifting are you speaking into? Like, who are the people that you seem to have a way to see how they're a blessing to the world? And you just seem to be the person who can, like, cheer them on and becoming a gift to the world. Who, who can you do that? And who does that for you? Who would make sure you don't quit? Who would not let you quit? Not let you give up? Can I be real transparent with you for a second? There was a, there was a Wednesday night, I remember, when I, it was like kind of tail end of some of the, there was the, COVID-19 stuff, lots of social stuff, lots of people had gotten upset and we lost a lot of friends. There was a minute I, I remember sitting in my office just weeping. And I, and I said to my, some of my closest friends in the whole world, I said, guys, I can't do this anymore. I think I'm done. I, I don't have anything left. I can't. It hurts too much. Danny looked at me and he started telling me stories of people whose lives have changed because we're here doing this. And Mark said, you're not quitting. It's like not an option. So let's talk about how we move forward. I didn't, I was not happy with them. <laughs> not in that moment. But I want you to understand, like, I'm standing here asking you who would help you not quit because my friends helped me not quit. And it's not any harder for me or easier for me because I'm a pastor. I'm just a guy. I need people. I cannot do this alone and neither can you. Who would help you not quit? Who would help you not walk away from community? I get I was so, I've been so grieved as I watch people just leave the church because of something we said in public and just like refuse to have a conversation. And one of the things that makes me sad about that is that they didn't have a friend in the church who would go track them down and say, no, we do this together. We resolve issues. It's heartbreaking. And I just, I'm just one guy. I can't be enough. You, us, together, are enough. Together, the body of Christ. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to take just the next 30 seconds and pray for the people you wrote down. Just pray for them. And, it, and, if, you, and if you sat listening to me ask all those questions and you couldn't think of a single person, then pray that you would be able to. That if by this time next year we preach the same sermon and ask the same questions, that you would have a list of names. Pray that. That's an okay prayer to pray. And maybe that prayer is accompanied by tears and grief and sadness. And I'm so sorry for the pain that you are experiencing. You are not meant to be alone in the kingdom. You deserve friends. Your life matters. And you bring something to the people around you. You are important. And you are not supposed to do this alone. I'm so sorry if you are. Pray with me. God, we pray a blessing over the names that I wrote down today. Thank you for them. Help me to honor them, steward the relationships well. Help me to think of the people I didn't even think of to write down. God, for those of us who didn't write down names we wanted to be able to write down, help us, meet us in our grief. God, ultimately we know 
that the vision that you have for the church is community, life together, building together what we cannot build alone. God, we have laid some prayers before you now in this moment, attached to some names or attached to the desire to have some names. God, would you honor these prayers? Hear us from heaven and answer our prayers. Build our community together so that we can become everything that you had in mind for us to become. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Friends, can I give you, can I give you three things that I, I want to challenge you to do before you head out? And then I just want to pray a blessing over you and we'll be done for the day. Um, here, here's, here's my challenge. And these challenges are going to increase in, in the, the, the level of challenge. So number one, you can do all three of these just, or just one, whatever. But here's, here's what I would love for you to do. Before you leave the, this room today, I'm going to dismiss you in a second. Before you leave this room, talk to at least three people. I hope you're not mad at me already, but just talk to, talk to at least three people. Okay. Now, challenge number two. This might not apply to everybody, but learn at least one name you didn't know before you walk out of this room. That's challenge number two. That might be a little bit more difficult. And some of you are like, I'm, I just started coming. That's super easy. Awesome. Cool. You're welcome for the, for the freebie. So talk to at least three people. Like, do church stuff. Talk to at least three people before you leave this room. Learn at least one name. And here's the super challenge. I dare you to make a lunch plan. And if you already have lunch plans today, you don't get away with it. <laughs> Next Sunday's coming, Mike. <laughs> ha, gotcha. Make a lunch plan. Spend time with people. Do it. Take a risk. I know it might be scary. Take a risk. It'll be good. Let's build this church together in community. Amen? Let me pray a blessing over you. Here's my blessing. In the name of Jesus, may you be rooted in and held together by the word of God. May you grow looking more and more like Jesus over time. May you have good friends in the church. May you and your friends help each other grow. May the way you do life in community be a powerful invitation into God's kingdom. May your friendship with people in the church be the best evangelism you ever do. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.